You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here at Conservative Review. We are off to a nice start this week on Monday, March 11th, a new week, even though we are a bunch of zombies here. We're all a bunch of zombies, all of us, for one reason or another. I'm a zombie because of the clock change. I'm telling you, as life gets uh, goes on and you get older, man, I can't even tolerate one hour of less sleep. I have a headache today. I'm just so weak and lethargic. I never used to notice it or care about it. I guess just a sign of age uh, creeping up on me. Uh, I can't stand this change in the clocks. I, I hate daylight savings time. I wish we would never change, much less uh, change this early in uh, in the year before winter is even over with. But don't worry, Donald Trump loves daylight savings time and he would keep it all year round. So that's what he is focused on. He tweeted that out today amidst the emergency on our border, the emergency that even the media is now talking about, but President Trump will not talk about. You see, because we we are all a bunch of zombies. We're zombies like the people that get doped up on this K2 spice know that they lace with rat poison and they literally look like zombies in the streets. It's very scary to watch it. That's one of the latest trends we spoke about before funded by the Yemeni uh, terrorists in this country. But um, it's, it's the political uh, dope that is just doping up our side. I got a lot of strong reactions from Friday's show. Almost all of you loved it. Um, where we just gave you the whole truth in a very sober way really tried to explain the mechanics of the border and and the courts, the judicial crisis, in a way that I think broke new ground to explain just how severe the problem is and just how we will never solve this or any other issue until we fight it back against the, this uh, judicial supremacism. And not only aren't we doing it, we're just agreeing to it more than ever. And the new strategy is to make excuses. So today we're here to try to give a vision of what we need to do that it's time for conservatives to stop making excuses for failure and start planning for success. Okay, rather than everything, oh, this is the courts, what am I going to do? We don't have 75 seats in the Senate. Oh, there's nothing. Look, everything, the immigration numbers are going up. The debt numbers are going up. Healthcare is worse than, oh, it's not our fault. Stop making excuses and start actually having a plan to succeed. But I wanted to start off today by noting that it's worse than just making excuses for failure. We've now reached the point where the signal that Trump is putting out and much of the phony conservative media is responding to is see no evil, hear no evil. So not just, oh, yeah, we're kind of losing, but it's not, it's not our fault. It's more, no, we're winning. Like I said, if, if it's too hard to climb Mount Everest, just deem yourself as having climbed it, right? It's a lot easier to say you did something that you believe is too hard for you to do than to actually try to do it. So there's there's no problem. One of the things by now you should notice over the last six days, since the amazing, insane border news has trickled out, where it is so undeniable the degree of the problem that even the media is talking about it now, guess who's not talking about it? Donald Trump. Now let me know. Email me if you have any ideas as to why he's reacting this way. I would have expected him to put together a press conference. I mean, this would be right up his alley. He could have made fun out of the media headlines, talked about how they laughed at him. Ha ha, now you see it is an emergency. And he could have doubled down and said, I'm getting rid of the magnets. There's no excuse for this. I'm getting rid of catch and release. I'm getting rid of birthright citizenship. 
could have addressed the magnets directly. We're not processing bogus asylum on our soil. We're going to call up the National Guard under Title 10. So that way the liberal governors can't get around it. And then not only are are we going to do that, we're going to have them do more than just string some wire at the at the fence. We're going to have them actually hold the line against the cartels and the legal immigration. We're going to designate the cartels as terror groups. All things he could do, by the way, executively. All things he could do executively. But no, we didn't. We haven't heard anything. Deputize all federal law enforcement in and around the area to function as ad hoc immigration enforcement. And also, by the way, deputize the sheriffs. Now, that that part, local law enforcement, that has to be done in concert with local officials. So the liberal areas won't agree to it, but at least in the areas where they will, they could be marshaled into that. These are all things he could do without Congress. Yet, there's nothing going on. What did the president put out on Twitter? Making daylight savings time permanent is okay with me. Okay, it's one thing. Let's see what else we got here. Um, talks about HR1 that passed... Uh, that passed the House, right? That was the bill that essentially codifies voter fraud, prevents states from blocking fraudulent voters, non-citizens voters, creates same-day registration, automatic registration, felons voting. But again, you know, that that's not going to pass the Senate. But as we noted, do you know where it is passing? Major elements of HR1 are already passing. The courts! <laughs> that that's the joke. We're all focused on all oh, men. Could you imagine if the Democrats win what they're going to get? They get it in the courts. They get it in the courts every time. The same courts that he is legitimizing and refusing to fight. They're actually doing that. We were the only ones to speak about that Texas judge. It's bizarre. You know, we had uh Logan Churchwell on. He's our buddy at J Christian, Christian Adams group. Um, the Public Interest uh, Legal Foundation. We were talking about this, but nothing, nothing. Uh, what else do we have? So the president put out over the weekend, trying to get the exact quote here. Let me just pull it up. Basically, see no evil, hear no evil. Okay. Wacky nut job Ann Coulter, who still hasn't figured out that despite all odds, an entire Democrat party of the far left radicals against me, not to mention certain Republicans who are sadly unwilling to fight. I am winning on the border. Major sections of wall are built, being built and renovated with much more to follow shortly. Tens of thousands of illegals are being apprehended at the border and not allowed into our country. With another president, millions would be pouring in. I'm stopping an invasion as the wall gets built. There is so much profundity in this Trump tweet. Embedded in this Trump tweet is everything that is wrong with what he's doing, with his what his defenders are doing, with this phony conservative movement, and what I call political morphine. No, see no evil, hear no evil. And to the extent there's problems, well, it would have been worse without me. Actually, I have reason to believe if Obama would have, would have been there, just because of the sheer embarrassment, he would have wouldn't have let the courts bully him around that much and would have done more. Now he would be proposing amnesty, but he wouldn't want such a large new flow because it would get in his way. But look, let, let, let's put aside Ann Coulter and his fight with her. She's obviously saying the right things now, but she wrote the book in Trump We Trust. So I mean, I, I'm not I don't know what her game is, kind of first in, first out trying to be ahead of the curve, the first one to support him, now the first conservative to, to back away. Um, whatever it is, uh, that, that, that's not my job to get involved in, in her politics and w- what it is. But the point is that Trump is now attacking her and not any of the rhinos. He complains that some Republicans are willing to fight. But when it comes to – see, that's the thing. You, you're, you're never allowed to attack him, attack him from the right. So – I'm winning. Major sections of the wall are being built. That's not true. 
renovated. That is true. But here's the thing. Remember when we were the first to warn you that we had an observation based on 700 people caught at the El Paso fence last Wednesday night that our agents are now grabbing or picking up people from behind the fence, rendering the fence entirely moot. Guess what? Reuters and the Wall Street Journal, Journal uh, Wall Street Journal are now reporting that. Both of them. We just we just pick them up. They come to the fence and wait. The cartels are now using that as a safe location just to drop them off. Doesn't cost them much. They don't have to smuggle them in. And that's it. We come and pick them up. <laughs> I mean, that story alone is a deal breaker to this entire entire political heroine. And all the distractions. Build the phones. You idiot. It doesn't work in this context. Now that this administration is so obsequious, they're picking people up from behind the fence. They're not being allowed into the country. What is he? That, that's a lie. I don't know what he's even talking about. They're being apprehended. Yeah, that's the problem. They're being apprehended. Apprehensions. See, apprehensions are no longer good. They used to be good because that meant that within a couple hours, we got them out of here. Now apprehensions are a problem because that means within a couple hours or a couple days, they get sent into our country. And you know what's happening? Reuters reports 2,000 people are being quarantined among the migrants. And those are just the ones we found with diseases. Again, a lot of them, I noted this before, you don't show symptoms. It could take 25 days to show symptoms for months. They're let out within 10 to 20 days easily. So you never know how many more we're exposed to. Wall Street Journal reports that according to government estimates, 180,000 more family unit individuals, individuals from family units could come in from now until May. Okay? Two months. 90,000 a month. Um, oh, but it would have been millions. Yes. Without him, it would have been even more. Folks, if you buy into this, I, I don't know what to tell you, but I'm just saying this is a signal. Watch what I'm saying. Don't doubt me here. Watch what I'm saying because I'm always proven true within 48 hours. This is going to be the next trend to ignore that there's even a problem. We've solved the border problem. And to the extent that there's any issues, oh, it would have been worse. That is the entire purpose of this phony Republican Party and conservative movement to say it would have been worse under the Democrats. So now he's out spending time attacking Ann Coulter. And instead of using the news to to take a victory lap, take yes for an answer, the media's busted. Double down on policies, but no, he doesn't want to do it because he doesn't have the guts because everyone in his administration is saying not to do it. So therefore, he's deciding not to do it. And therefore, once he decides not to do it, nobody demands anything of him because whereas Democrats are controlled by the liberal movement, the Republican Party is not controlled by the conservative movement. It controls it. It's not directed by conservatives. It directs conservatives. And therein lies the problem, the dichotomy between the two parties. And it's even worse under Trump because unlike more of a traditional establishment Republican, he has so much cachet built up with conservatives that they'll just totally stand down. They will stand down and will not get in his face. And that's a problem. It's a very big problem. So I just wanted to continue that from last week before we get onto the budget today. It's a huge problem. And then finally, Trump mentions it in his last tweet as of this broadcast. It was uh, this morning. Republican senators have a very easy vote this week. It is about border security and the wall, not constitutionality and precedent. It is an 80% positive issue. The Dems are 100% united as usual on a 20% issue. Open borders and crime. Get tough R's. So all he cares is about the dumb vote on the reprogramming of the $2.5 billion in funding to build what? A border fence. For, for what? 
so we can go and bring in the migrants behind the border fence. See, I could construct a fence around my garden, but if I go out and bring in the squirrels and rabbits, you know, like I open my gate and I bring them in, well, (laughs) there's no debate over the efficacy of a fence. It has nothing to do with the fence. It's the efficacy of your brain. This is one problem that we cannot move on from. Because if indeed we are told that until Congress acts, the administration believes it is their mandate, they must go and pick up any illegal that comes on our soil and process them, then the fence won't help. Certainly a very partial one. But don't worry, in the budget, they asked for another $8.7 billion for border wall funding. They said pretty pleased in the budget proposal. So do, yeah, come September, they're going to fight for it because they're not scared of a government shutdown, right? Huh. <laughs> I, I, what do you want me to tell you? Should I lie to you? Do, do you want me to tell me, oh, MAGA, it's going great? Am I supposed to make things up? Look, look, I, I'm going to try to find a good story here or there. We're on some level, we're making some progress. Okay, so um, the latest news is USCIS and DOJ are clamping down more than ever on some of this birth tourism. You know, these wealthy Russian and Chinese families that come here pregnant, lie about the circumstances of their tourist visa, and come here for the purpose of birthright citizenship. All right, so that, you know, I, I just figured I'd mention that. It's funny. All the Trump sycophants aren't even mentioning that because, again, it's not about policy what's important. That's the irony. Like, you know, you're going to hear the criticism of Trump that you won't hear elsewhere, but you'll also hear the praise of some of the few good things the administration is doing that others won't do because I don't actually get my news from the mainstream media like all the people who obsess about complaining about the mainstream media get their news from. I actually research things. But, um, But I will tell you, not to poo-poo it, it is kind of interesting that we're obsessively focused on the birth tourism, but not the illegal immigrant stuff. So there's two types of phony birthright citizenship for illegals. It's people here on temporary visas where they lie to get in, and people just come here illegally or overstay their visa. Now, either way, under the true understanding of the Constitution, there is no way you are an automatic citizen. Okay. There is no way. Um, just none whatsoever. It means you have to be permanently domiciled here, not an illegal, and not here on a temporary visa. So, that's the story here. But. Let's be very clear. I don't have the exact figures in front of me, but it's something like where is there's 300 to 400,000 anchor babies born a year by illegals. There's about 30,000 birth tourists. So A in numbers is much less. And look, let, let's just call a spade a spade. Why is it that it's politically correct? It, it, it seems okay you could go over, yeah, those wealthy Chinese and Russians taking advantages of... And, and I'm not making fun out of it because they are taking advantages, uh, advantage of us, and I certainly want it stopped. But you know, it's okay to the extent you ever address or broach the issue of anchor babies. It's like, okay, it's kosher to do it from the vantage point of going after the birth tourism. Oh, but don't touch those uh, oh those those migrants from Central America. There's a reason for it and it's all identity politics, but what I'm telling you is it's stupid because just from a public policy standpoint, a um uh for, first of all, there's more of them from the much, you know, about 10 times more from from illegal immigrants than from the tourist visas and b Let's face it, these guys are wealthy. They're not going to be a public charge. Now, look, I don't like stolen sovereignty even without a public charge. I'm just saying it's a whole lot different than what's going on from Central America in terms of the fiscal cost. As you guys well know, on Friday, I put out an article 
trying to quantify just in a small way the fiscal cost of just one year's flow. So I figure, let's say it's about 990000 That's the pace of February, which they're predicting March and April to be even more. But let's say a million a year. Stephen Camerata estimates using the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, they have a certain way of calculating the average cost of, of you know a resident here based on education attainment, poverty levels, based on our tax benefit structure, welfare programs, and then just you know how much they're a net producer, net taker in terms of just the general services that states and localities provide. And they found, and, and, and he said that the actual net lifetime fiscal cost of illegal border crossing, crossers, given their educational levels, is between 140000 and 150000 per person. Now, if you think about it, net cost for a lifetime, that's actually very low. But I just used that very low ball cost, and that would come out to up to $150 billion. Just one year's flow that we have to pay for, $150 billion. And again, that doesn't include the anchor babies. And ironically, it's the anchor babies that that you know anchor them, that, that incentivize them to come here. But... That doesn't even include them because they're considered American. So we're not even including them in that equation. That would add billions more if you include those. A lot of them are coming pregnant for the purpose of having a baby. It's also important to remember when Camerata uh, did the, this study was two years ago, the population has gotten even more impoverished. It's literally moved to almost just the indigenous Mayan population in Central America that Commissioner McAleen said himself they likely never used sanitary plumbing before. I mean, this is what we're bringing in. So the numbers are even worse. And remember, none of this includes the upfront costs because it's not like, you know, this is just long-term. Okay, you're in the country, you're this, that. The upfront cost of just at the border the healthcare, what we're doing right now, the, the thousands being taken to hospitals. That's not included in this. None of that. And again, 2,000, 2,000 people quarantined. But how many weren't successfully quarantined? Trump's not even talking about this. He should be tweeting out that Reuters story. It's a Reuters story. Why why do you think Trump is not taking yes for an answer? This is right up his alley if you think about it. Because again, what's his most important thing? Combating the media. Well, I mean, (laughs) the media is totally busted on this. Why do you think he's doing this? My theory is that he basically knows that this is going to continue to get worse and he's not going to do anything about it because he's given in to everyone in his administration who has said that no, 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 no. You can't do anything. Whatever a court says is God. So as I noted on Friday, you're done. There's nothing left to do. So he just has to prep everyone for, well, no, we're really taking care of it. The last thing he's going to want to do now is magnify the problem He's going to have to deny the problem and, of course, say, oh, if not for me, it would be worse. Let me ask you, folks, particularly those of you who are very into Trump, and I respect that. I I understand that. I want to be into him. I'm into his campaign agenda. Are we doing him or any of us any good by standing down and going along with the charade? Because it's going to hurt him in the election, and, and then and then what about after the election? You know, there is more to life than the election. At some point, we win an election because da da da. Why? What do we want to do with it? I ask you, what is going to change culturally and economically? Two of the most important numbers and trends are immigration numbers illegal immigration numbers in particular, 
and spending numbers, debt numbers. Both of those are skyrocketing worse than under Obama. That is the reality. You could blame, we could explain how we got here, but first let's recognize that's the reality. Stop getting hormonal and taking it personal. No, Trump, you're criticizing Trump. Grow up. It's not about any one person. We're not winning. Which is why for the time being, because I have a lot more, I could always talk forever on news on immigration. Um, But I want to get to the budget proposal and debt and spending on and all that all that good stuff so let's see how to broach this so pursuant to the 1974 budget act um, the president's required to propose to congress a budget blueprint a proposal it's called a budget request where he says, here, here's how much I'd like to spend. Here's what the budget will look like. Here's what a 10-year projection will look like under current economic trends in terms of revenue and current uh, spending trends. And here's what you know how much debt we're going to accrue. Okay? So that is basically what happens. And it's, it's obviously, it's, it's, it's meaningless. It's a non-binding document. President can't pass a budget. Um, Congress could take it and throw it in the garbage or they could follow it or follow elements of it. Uh, For the most part, with most presidents, Congress ignores it, pass their own budget. But the president is not totally out of the picture. As you well know, the president has something. It's a very fancy word. It's a very abstract uh, concept. You might never have heard of it. It's a four-letter word. It's called veto, V-E-T-O. The president actually has a veto. So... um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't mean to be too sarcastic, but I'm just saying because some people are like, well, what, what do you want? Congress passes the budgets. Well, yeah, but not really because Congress doesn't pass nothing. <laughs> Without the president's signature, it's it's null and void. There's nothing there. There's no law. So um, he pa- so he, he has another budget proposal. Now, again, in understanding... We have two options. The president's budget, while full of eye-popping debt in it, has a couple of provisions that are relatively better than not passing that budget, than the status quo, right? A couple of provisions. Um, and I would rather that than nothing. And I have an article out today explaining a strategy for how to actually get this passed and play hardball with Democrats, which, of course, I doubt they'll do. But before we get to that, I just want to just note something. The main point today is not going through the numbers, and believe me, I have such a headache after waking up with a headache because I was tired, and then going through all these um, budget tables to try to put together this this article. It's not about what the budget cuts or doesn't cut or how people misrepresent it as cutting relative to this baseline but still increasing relative to this one. It's all a matter of will you stand behind it? It's worse than Charlie Brown the football. You know, I wrote an article. The the president, this is his third budget proposal. Okay? Really his fourth because it's his third full year, but they actually put a, put out a slim budget on February 28th, 2017 of the remainder of fiscal year 2017, which was carried over from the previous administration to cut spending. And I praised it. I praised it profusely. I was like, you know, pound per pound, it's proposing the most spending cuts since Reagan. They followed none of it. Congress followed none of it, not a single thing, and Trump signed it. Then he proposed the next budget. And I was like, look, good budget, but make it stick this time. Okay, don't fool us. Actually fight for it when the end of the fiscal year comes around and actually threaten a veto. Because otherwise, it's ridiculous if you're just going to put out these numbers and not plan to stand behind it. What do they do? They increase spending in every single category that he proposed to cut. So not only didn't they make the cuts, they actually increased spending in HUD, Department of Education, um, community block grant programs, all these programs he promised to cut, they actually expanded. Then you had 
fiscal year 2019, which was last year. No, I'm sorry, fiscal year 2018. But 19 was done kind of together. It was done done last year where they busted the budget caps. So as you all know, one of the few successes we attained during the Obama administration, which with, by the way, just control of one house, remember that, was the Budget Control Act. And it finally set mandatory spending caps on discretionary spending. Now, as you all know, um, 70% of the budget is so-called mandatory spending, welfare, entitlements, Medicare, Social Security, and then obviously the interest on the debt, which is self-fulfilling, that it's not subject to the annual appropriations process. So that's on autopilot. But at least the discretionary spending, they capped, and they, there were two um, methods for capping. It placed caps every year that you couldn't go above them, both for non-defense discretionary and for defense discretionary, it's military spending. And then it put into place automatic sequestration to go through a couple months later at the beginning of the calendar calendar year. So the fiscal year starts October 1st, budget caps are in place, and then there's further cuts that come in the next January 1st if you don't reach some sort of, a, a, of an agreement to waive them or do whatever. So at the time, we... we noted that we could have done better because what they did was more of the cuts were made to the military than non-defense spending. So it was like putting a gun to your head and we knew that Republicans would be so terrified they'd ultimately give in to the Democrats every time on non-defense spending, which is why we've never ever had sequestration because it's become a joke because they're scared of the defense spending. Okay. So anyway, last time they agreed they busted the budget caps by $300 billion for two years. So you know, three, between FY 2018 and FY 2019, which is the current year we're operating in, they busted it by $300 billion. And really, if you look at the gimmicks, it was a lot more than that as well. So here we are. They proposed another budget to, on average, cut discretionary spending by 5%. And they propose 2.8 billion or so over 10 years, uh, 2.8 trillion over 10 years in, um, in what do you call it? In uh, entitlement reforms, you know, welfare, work requirements, the typical stuff he said the last three years. What am I supposed to do with it? Am I, so, so you know, obviously the media on the left and then all these new uh, welfare organizations are going to come in. Oh, this is draconian, whatever. And, I could sit and do battle with them or I could say, like, dude, we're all wasting our time. <laughs> you, you've done this three other times and it was a joke. Not only did you not cut, you went backwards and increased spending. So I think the more important thing is that actually to have an accountability mechanism for the conservative movement to tell the president, this is all well and done, but come September, what is your strategy for not caving? Now, I want to get to that strategy in a minute, but I first want to just give you just a broad overview of how bad things are, of how far to the left we have all moved, how far, just like on immigration, just like on the courts, just like on social issues, just on healthcare, we have agreed to such debt and spending that we don't even realize. This budget itself, let's say we enacted it. Let's say we enacted this budget. What would it look like? Okay? We got everything we'd ever want. Let's say we had 100 senators right now, and they agreed to pass this Trump budget. Okay, what would it look like? So first of all, it's important to recognize just we've already accrued $2.1 trillion in debt under the first 26 months of this administration, and we're just getting started. There's $1.1 to $1.3 trillion annual deficits, you know, until the eye can see. So this budget would spend, this is FY 2020. Right now we're in 2019. Fiscal year 2020 begins October 1st. This blueprint would spend $4.75 trillion next fiscal year. To give you some perspective, Obama's final budget was 4.15. Okay? 
So this is another $600 billion more than Obama's final year. I remember when we were shocked when at the beginning of his presidency, we went over $3 trillion in spending. And we blew through the $4 trillion marker now without even batting an eyelash, and we're going to be at $5 trillion very soon, our annual budget. Despite a record $3.6 trillion in projected revenue, the budget would still result in a $1.1 trillion deficit. And that's going to stay for years. Now, magically, after five years, they start reducing the deficit. And then they say, at 15 years, it will balance, which is a joke. Now, this budget proposes spending $56.3 trillion. $56.3 trillion over the next 10 years. I remember when we were yelping at $30 trillion over 10 years. Put it this way, Trump's initial budget just two years ago, talked about $48 trillion. That was the number. Now it's $56.3 trillion. It would create a $7.3 trillion deficit over 10 years, but that number is a joke because it's a lot more than that. Because guess what? They're assuming 3 to 3.2% growth every year for 10 years. Now, think about this. As we proved, and we've been proven right, that even in the best year, with the juiced-up tax cuts, the biggest corporate tax cut of all time, the best job economy since the late 60s. Still, we actually, you know, they talk about 3%. We actually didn't make it. It was 2.9 for the year. But okay, whatever. But that was the best. And now it cooled off in the fourth quarter. Nobody thinks. So they're predicting, what, 3.2% for this year? CBO's predicting 2.3. Now, you could say CBO gets it wrong. But I don't know anyone who looks at the current state of play and all the factors and that there's any sign that we're going to get 3.2. But that we would get it for 10 years, that's never happened. It's like even, even in a good time, you're going to have the business cycle. I mean, even in a good time. But the sick irony is under their debt plan, which would accrue so much debt, as I've noted 100 times, the reason why for the first time since World War II, we are not seeing sustained 3% and then peak years of 4 to 5% during the boom periods, that the boom periods are kind of limited, is because of the albatross of the debt and our managed economy and our venture socialist economy that this uh, very budget proposal agrees to and actually expands in some ways, which we're going to get to. That's the irony. It's a death spiral of debt and debt and interest on the debt and more spending and higher interest rates. See, the more desperate we are to service our debt, the more people are going to invest in it. The higher that pushes the treasury note, the more interest we then accrue, then the more we spend and the more interest we accrue and the higher the rates go and uh, so on and so forth. We're in a death spiral. So there's no way revenue will be that high. And then it assumes $2.8 trillion in mandatory spending cuts that the administration, I mean, they won't even fight for a wall in a meaningful way. You think they're going to have a budget showdown over welfare reform? Are you kidding? They keep touting that, you know, trotting that out. Cuts that they've known, shown no, no, not one scintilla of effort to fight for. So it's not. It's really $10 trillion in deficit. That's the real number because that's bogus. It's ten trillion, and really, it's closer to fourteen, fifteen trillion. This coming year alone, interest on the debt is going to be four hundred and seventy-nine billion. That is twice as much as just two years ago. Double, doubled in two years. It doubled the interest on the debt. That is more than the entire federal share of Medicaid and Obamacare together. Something like $420 billion for that. Now, if you add on states, states would probably be another um, close to $200 billion. But at least the federal share, interest on the debt is more than Medicaid, and Medicaid is growing wildly. And that includes the Obamacare subsidies too. In 10 years, interest on the debt will rise to $823 billion. 
Even Medicare is all, is 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 currently 200 billion less than that. Medicare won't reach that benchmark for another 5 years. And again, this proposal assumes that the 10-year treasury note will never rise above 3.8%. Right? And um I mean that's just I don't know what to tell you. It's just not realistic. It just isn't. At the current trajectory, that's still well below historical averages, more 5 to 6%. I'm not saying we're necessarily going to get that high that quickly, but um, it's, it's happening really quick. Remember, interest payments doubled. That's the money that's thrown in the garbage. Doubled in two years. See, this is why we keep getting it wrong. This is why CBO or OMB, whenever they put out a proposal two years later, you look back and it's like, everything's worse than was projected because it's a death spiral. Not just that the spending winds up being more, but because it winds up, it, it in itself is an albatross around the economic growth, you don't get that revenue that you say you're going to get. But it's amazing. They only have the treasury notes going to 3.8%, which is not much higher than where it already is. So, I mean, dude, I guarantee you at this pace is going to be well over a trillion in annual interest on the debt. Annual interest on the debt will be what Social Security is now. No one's talking about it. Nobody is talking about it. Then what else? We have this new market-distorting entitlement program. Ivanka Care was put in there, paid family leave. Now, I don't have time today to get into the market distortions and what that does and how counterintuitive it is to women and the marketplace and how stupid it is everywhere where it was tried. Meaning how even if we had all the money in the world, forget about a budgetary standpoint, just what it does to the economy is, is harmful. They put it in there, and here's the deal. They have it essentially revenue neutral. <laughs> Why? Because the, according to the proposal, they would allow people to tap their social security benefits early to pay for paid family leave. So it wouldn't cost us anything. Folks, do you believe for a minute that if we statutorily open the floodgates for a new entitlement, that somehow you'd be able to permanently wall off it expanding even not for your social security benefits. I, I I mean, I cannot imagine Mike Lee is is endorsing this. He co-sponsored it. And somehow I was like, oh, fiscal conservative. She was saying, oh, you have a choice. You get your paid leave or you got your social security. But you're creating a new entitlement that didn't exist that we don't have to create. I mean, this is where our entire barometer is so off in terms of progress. Now we're no longer at the point of, oh, we're going to roll back what the left did, albeit in a mealy-mouthed way. That was the previous generation of, of Republicans. Now it's, we're going to keep everything they've done, in, done until now, and then we're going to take the new stuff that they're proposing, and it's not even that popular, and we're not even on the hook to pass it, and it, it's, there's, there's no likelihood that they're necessarily going to succeed in it, but we're going to pass it ourselves, but in a slightly different way than they want to do it. I mean, could you imagine the cliff you're going to create all these people that are going to go without Social Security because they tapped it when they're younger, do you think we're going to let that happen? No, we're going to get both. We're going to spend both. And then every year, Democrats will find ways to expand it and Republicans will agree. That is how far we've come as conservatives. Mike Lee is proposing this, by the way, because he's very close with Ivanka because they work together on criminal justice reform because we're all conservative now. I'm sorry. like I don't mean to make fun of everyone, but it's just like... This is um this is unbelievable. Unreal. So anyway, where does this leave us? Okay, they've failed to fight on spending until now in this administration when we had control of all three branches. And we all know any talk about entitlement changes is BS. It ain't happening. Um I I don't have to you know, give them the benefit of the doubt anymore. We we already did, and it's just nonsense. 
So it leaves us with discretionary spending. And they're promising once again to, to cut spending. Now, normally I would just laugh it off 100% as we did every other year. And sadly, I predict that's ultimately what's going to happen. But I want to give you an example of if we had a conservative movement mobilized and focused, where the opportunity would be this time. Um, and again, you know, when you talk about the Trump administration, it's not monolithic, and that's important to remember. Particularly this administration, probably more than any other, it's just all over the place. It's chaotic. And you have some people that share our concerns and our values and share conservative goals. And you have others that will do everything they can to undermine those goals. And, and our job is to empower those that are trying to fight for us on the inside over those who aren't. So by us just standing down and like, hey, you know, everything's good, whatever, um, that's, that's nonsense. You're not helping anyone. So basically, the acting OMB director since Mick Mulvaney became chief of staff to Trump, his name is Russ Vogt. He's a friend of mine. Many of us who have fought for the right things have known him for many years. You're not going to get someone better than that in that position. And he wrote in Real Clear Politics, he wrote an op-ed about a month ago setting the stage for the following strategy. That basically, unlike last year, where the budget caps were already changed from the previous year's capitulation, so it was baked, this year it's not. So typically, if we want to cut spending, we need to change law or we need to get something changed to cut spending, and that's how you have a fight. Here, automatically, it reverts back to the 2011 Budget Control Act, where automatically, on September 1st or October 1st, you have a certain amount of budget cuts and then even steeper cuts on January 1st. And and by the way, that two-step process actually gives us a little bit more leverage rather than having one big cliff where the media will blow up it, it does a little bit more gradually and will be like hey you know that's where if you had an administration that would leverage its veto and say hey look if you don't want to go with my budget well we could always do the status quo normally the status quo is keeping the status quo spending here the status quo if you would pass a clean CR automatically the budget caps revert and automatically spending is cut. That's where the leverage is. Okay, that is where the leverage is. Now, you might be asking me, well, Daniel, that's all good and well this year compared to last year, but what about compared to two years ago when, to begin with, the administration was in the same position with all three branches of government and the budget caps would have reverted and they downright agreed to the Democrats to go and bust the budget caps. So why wouldn't they just do it again? And why isn't this all 100% the same charade. Now, again, I, I fear that ultimately because we have a distracted movement, it is going to be the same. But what Russ Vogt in this op-ed laid out was a strategy that, you know, typically where this problem comes from is because Republicans have a maniacal fear of the budget cuts of sequestration applying to the military. So in order to get military spending, they have to pay the um, tax, it's kind of like the cartels and, you know, the Mexican cartels, you got to pay the tax to go through their territory. So you got to give the Democrats the ransom and give them the more, the higher spending on the non-defense uh, discretionary spending. So that's how it's been going on for years. What he wa- opened up was this avenue to say, hey, look, we're, we're no longer fearful of your hostage taking because you know what? We'll let the caps go in. We'll let them apply. And we'll get our extra spending out of what's called OCO, Overseas Contingency Operations Account, uh, where it's you know you have base defense spending that's set by caps, but then you have money set aside for OCO, that's the operations overseas, and we'll we'll just use that for base defense, which they can do. Now, normally we don't like it. That's a gimmick. Normally it's a gimmick to spend even more because you want to bust the cap, so you're capped by spending. So where do you get your extra money? You go and hide it in Noco. But here, he's actually doing it for a good cause to, to basically assuage the concerns of military spending hawks 
and say, look, we'll get it through there, but then let's keep this the the caps down across the board. Normally, we wind up getting both. We bust the caps and we spend Oko. Um, now, and, and look, I'm all fine with that because, frankly, I would rather spend military spending on base defense deterrent than on overseas contingency operations, which is the nonsense going on in Syria and Afghanistan and elsewhere and Somalia and who knows what. And frankly, I've also reached a point where I just don't give a darn about military spending. And you know, you know, I've said this before. If we are not even going to deploy our military to our border when we literally have the worst form of an invasion imaginable, both from the cartel perspective, from a fiscal charge, from diseases. And we will not deploy them in a, in a meaningful way other than 2,100 troops stringing some wire and fixing some trucks, helping us process and manage the invasion rather than deter it. That's the problem anyway. And all we have it for is either sex change operations. Saw that report that came out. Um, how the military paid for sex change operations. Women in combat agenda, this, all the gender bending, social licentiousness, war on religion. Then what do we need it for? If that's all we're going to do with our military, then, then screw it. In other words, as I've said many times, we don't have a military spending problem. We have a military policy problem, which is, if you notice, my theory on the border too, and really the conservative view on almost everything. So um, that's where we're at with that. By the way, Washington Examiner has an article that by the end of the month, the number of troops could be cut at our border. Not that they're really doing much. So, um, So that's the story there. By the way, before I forget, someone put out an analysis of the Supreme Court session so far. Roberts was more often in agreement with more liberal justices than he was with more conservative justices, excluding Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh, too, had a high level of agreement with the liberal justices. <laughs> oh, boy. But, but, but Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh. I mean, the, the fine print matters. Do, do you not want me to tell you this stuff? Should I just let you go on thinking that we're winning the border, we're winning the courts, Kavanaugh's great, we have a majority on the Supreme Court, we're cutting the spending, or are we going to have a plan to fight for it? Don't deem it as happened when it's not happening. Fight for it. So anyway, just to go back, this is the whole vision of the budget. It's a disgrace that we've gotten to this point, that we've agreed to such a premise. You see the failures of this administration in the last three years when they had even more power, last two years when they had even more power, but nonetheless, there is a good acting OMB director, and he's trying at least on the discretionary spending to have this fight, and that's his strategy. But again, I, you know, unless there is some sort of movement behind Trump to to fight for this, you know, Mnuchin and these other guys in the, in the administration who have a stronger voice, they're going to win out. So I know I'm going to get a lot of criticism for criticizing Trump's budget, so to speak, and talking it down a little bit. But you need that pressure from the right. Otherwise, this administration is going nowhere. Anyway, before we close up here, just wanted to touch on a couple of brief notes. Remember how last week, DHS Secretary Nielsen agreed to continue this TPS amnesty this amnesty that's abused. It wasn't meant to be amnesty for illegals. It was for people who are here temporarily, legally, um, and they can't go home because of a flood or some sort of natural disaster in their hometown. And 400,000 El Salvadorans took advantage of it, as well as Haitians, Nicaraguans. Um, so this week, they added South Sudan to the list. Now, it only applies to 84 people, but again, I'm just noting how once again, and we'll have this in show notes, it's a Breitbart article, the administration continues to disappoint us you know, across the board. And that's the thing. We do 
ourselves and the people doing good work in the administration no favors by standing down and not pointing out the problems. Because if we don't advocate for ourselves, nobody else will. Okay, that's that's the thing. Nobody will hold that right flank. So, you know, when we hold back from getting in the face of this administration, we truly are not doing anyone favors. It's truly a big problem. Another another point, and I forget if I mentioned this, but if not, if I didn't mention it last week, if I did it, then it'll just be a repetition, but I'm sure some of you did not hear. The 11th Circuit actually finally issued a, the, a correct ruling on immigration. A bunch of illegals wanted to get in-state tuition in Georgia, and Georgia is not one of the states that offers it. By the way, the 1996 IRA-IRA law actually prohibits states from doing so, and I never understood how they get around that, but that's just another example of how we've already passed statutes, and it doesn't help because the executive branch, state, liberal states are always able to ignore it, and the courts are able to ignore it. But anyway... Georgia denied it to them, and they said, no, no, you don't understand. We're not illegal. We're DACA. That means we're illegal. Well, 11th Circuit ruled, no, of course you're here illegally. Why doesn't Trump take that 11th Circuit ruling and say, hey, both the 11th, and now I know it's in a slightly different case, but the rationale behind it is, is the same. Why is the 11th any worse than the 9th? I'm going to follow the 11th. I mean, you see what I'm saying? I'm not even asking him, like I said on Friday, to to fully go full bore against the Supreme Court, but where you have a circuit split and it's so radical what they're doing, I mean, come on. Just drives me nuts. Absolutely drives me nuts. So there's that point. And again, I just want to reiterate from Friday's show. Remember, the Ninth Circuit ruling, this was not on DACA, this is something else, on on Thursday, that offered constitutional habeas corpus rights to endless appeals to federal courts, not immigration courts, but federal courts for illegals, which will essentially create a magnet until the end of time. It wasn't defining a statute or interpreting a statute. It was so-called invalidating, striking down a statute. A statute that was passed in 1996, it passed under voice vote in the Senate. In the House, it was something like um, uh, roughly 400 to 30 or something. And in the Senate, it passed by voice vote. We are told... 535 members of Congress could pass something. The president could sign it, could stand for a number of years. Case law, at any time, a single district judge could just say no. If that is the case, we have no country. So, you know, I'm glad we were able to get back into some other issues today. Obviously, we discussed the debt. We're going to get back into immigration in the coming days as, as this goes on. But remember... We have two options. We could be a bunch of sycophants. Hey, hey, Trump, great budget. Or we could say, hey, Mr. President, you screwed us two other times. Why is this time different? Well, here's a strategy. Your OMB director put out the strategy. Are you going to follow it and hold them to it from now through September? And remember, there is going to be a debt ceiling deadline sometime then too. See, that's the thing. You could put out whatever budget proposal you want. You could say, I'm going to balance the budget in two years. But it's not what you put out in March that's important. It's what you're willing to fight for in September when the rubber meets the road that actually matters. It, it, it's the budget bills. It's the debt ceilings. It's the farm bills. It's the program reauthorization bills that go through Congress. The president's got to leverage his veto. And he and, and he, he, he not only didn't veto, he praised these bills. Remember, like, one of the things, see, you know, they're going to say, look, you know, 
we're allowed to have an aspirational document of this is what we'd like to do to entitlement spending and then count that towards savings. But the thing is, the administration already had an opportunity. It was called the Farm Bill that addressed all these agricultural programs as well as food stamps. And the House had some sort of very modest work requirement program attached to it. The Senate eliminated it. And the administration didn't fight for it for two seconds. And then praised the farm bill. And Trump praised it. Oh, we're doing good to our farmers. So what am I supposed to do when you then go put that provision in a a budget blueprint and say, oh, we're saving money? (laughs) You didn't fight. I mean, Congress could not have passed a farm bill without your signature. That was your leverage. I can't ignore that. You know what I mean? That matters. Writing a budget is not getting in the end zone. We got to pressure them to make the plays. That's what we're doing here today. The bottom line is we need to come up with plans and strategies to su- succeed rather than making excuses for failure or even worse, ignoring the failure and making the failure in itself a success. Till next time, God bless y'all. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Thank you.